Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and relove our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Derek, how's your book going? <laughs> it's going. It's going. It's going. It's going in on Monday. I feel like you've been on before, Sarah, and you've been up against a deadline. And so is is appearing on backlisted, does that help you finish a book or or does it does it delay <laughs> the book? We will have to see what people think of it when it comes out, whether whether this uh, whether I fell at the final hurdle because I came on tonight. <laughs> yeah, because I'm definitely going to blame you if the, if the reviewers don't like it. Excellent. That seems yeah. fair <laughs> because I could have fixed everything about it in the two hours that we're going to take to do this if it's bad. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, where are you calling from? I'm calling from glamorous East Finchley in North London. Have you managed to get out of East Finchley much? Barely at all. I haven't been to my office at The Spectator for approximately two years now. Wow. Um, so I, I'm a complete shut-in. I'm, I'm becoming more Pinchonian by the day. <laughs> Aren't we all? I mean, we're all... <laughs> we're yes. all now, it's Thomas Pynchon. his world, we're learning to live in it. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The world Pynchon dictated, yeah. Oh, dear. Johnny, should we start? Why don't we? Why don't we kick on in? Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in the mid-60s, squinting into the sunshine behind the wheel of a rented Impala as we speed down the freeway towards the city of San Narciso in Southern California. In front of us looms a vast sprawl of houses, to the left miles of barbed wire top fencing and the entrance to the Galactronics division of Yo-Yo Dine Inc., the city's biggest employer its main gateway flanked by two 60-foot missiles. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And today we welcome back two friends of the podcast, Dame Sam Leith and Dame Sarah Churchwell. Welcome back to both of you. <laughs> Thank you. It's very nice to be promoted. Thank you. It's <laughs> lovely to be back. Two Danes. I don't know why I said that. Anyway, <laughs> uh, nothing like a Dane. Yeah, exactly. I've usually been called a I've been called a Dane by worse people than you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh dear. Well, can you spare a Dane? Yeah. 
Sam is literary editor of The Spectator magazine and the author of a handful of books, including You Talking to Me, Rhetoric from Aristotle to Obama, and Right to the Point, that's right with a W, Right to the Point, <laughs> How to Be Clear, Correct and Persuasive on the Page. He's now working on a book about the history of children's literature. And he joined us for the 96th episode of Backlisted, which was dedicated to Ray Bradbury and the Illustrated Man. And also, Sam is the host of the Spectator's Books podcast, aren't you, Sam? Very good. I am. Is that a minnow to your whale. Is that podcast <laughs> currently up for an award at the British Press Guild Awards? <laughs> I, I, I suspect that, that the answer is... Uh, no, but yours is. Is it? Oh, how <laughs> how nice of you to mention. So nice of you to bring it up, Sam. I can't. That's so generous of you. Well, congratulations, Andy. Absolutely shameless. Shameless. <laughs> I'm just asking. I'm just asking the question. This is a freedom of speech issue. Um, right. And, That's what it is. And it is. Yeah. And, well, we haven't said it, have we? We haven't said it. We just Not. let Sam say it. So anyway, <laughs> also we're joined by Sarah Churchwell today. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Uh, Sarah is professor in American literature and chair of public understanding of the humanities at the School of Advanced Study, University of London. She is the author of Behold America, a history of America first and the American dream and the many lives of Marilyn Monroe, which in 2022 inspired a four part CNN documentary narrated by Jessica Chastain. Her latest cool. book is The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Myths of Modern America. Cost she likes a fight, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and that's coming out. It's coming out in July 2022. Is that Bloody the book hell, that's you just, quick. Is that the book you finished today? Yeah. I'm Whoa. literally here as I've just finished uh, the edits and have delivered it. So it comes out in the summer and uh, I've been immersed in I've been immersed in Gone with the Wind and Civil War, so I'm gonna have to shift gears uh to the 60s as john said but i will do my best amazing turnaround by from head of zeus your publisher uh, respect yeah they've been great about it i actually delivered something a while ago and i wasn't happy with it and they've been really great about it and i was like uh can i have a do-over <laughs> yes which was incredibly marvelous of them and so um so now I, now i have to I really, really, <laughs> really hope none of my authors are listening to this. It's just, this is well, they should awful. take they should take note that you've begun the publicity campaign within hours of finishing the book. <laughs> indeed, indeed, and have nothing but praise for my publisher. <laughs> yeah, so keep them, yeah, keep them sweet. This is Sarah's sixth appearance on Backlisted. She joined us previously to talk about Nella Larson, Anita Luce, Gail Jones. Gail Jones, imagine that. Uh, as Gail Jones publishes novel after novel at the moment. Incredible. Uh, I think we, we inspired her, don't you think? Yeah, we, William Faulkner. He's got one coming out too. <laughs> and, and, uh, and she made a cameo appearance on our on our Proustmas, Marcel Proust episode as well, which was great. Uh, Johnny? The book we're here to discuss is The Crying of Lot 49, the second novel by Thomas Pynchon, first published in the US in 1966 by J.B. Lippincott & Co., although excerpts had appeared the previous year in Esquire and Cavalier magazines. Its first UK publication was in 1967 by Jonathan Cape. 
usually described, we might come on to this, as a classic of postmodern fiction. It follows the attempts of a young Californian woman, Oedipa Maas, to make sense of why she's been made executrix of a former lover's estate. As we will doubtless discover, the book is impossible to describe succinctly. It's a brilliant and intricate satire in 60s America, a gripping page-turner, a literary hall of mirrors which scorches its way into the reader's consciousness through the strange beauty of its language, the audacity of its ideas, and the zaniness of its plot and characters. Anyway, before we start comparing notes on Jacobean tragedy or trolling Instagram in search of muted post-horns, Andy, what have you been reading this week? So I've been reading a book that came out last year by our former guest on Backlisted, Susie Boyt. It's her seventh novel, and it's called Loved and Missed. And um, Susie said something to me after we recorded the episode. John Berryman, wasn't it? John Berryman and the Dream Songs. And Sam, I know you're a big uh, Berryman yeah. fan, aren't you? We were talking about the role that uh, alcohol and addiction played in Berryman's life and work both those things life and work and um, she said to me you know my novel that I've just published is sort of about a similar topic but coming at it from a different angle it's coming at the at it from the angle of the people who had to live alongside John Berryman and that's really stuck in my mind but what with one thing and another, I wasn't able to get to the novel straight away. But I'm really pleased that I did because it's just brilliant. I'm almost pleased I hadn't read it before she came on. I know that I should have done. But I think I would have been considerably more intimidated. It's just such a brilliant book. Um, it's her seventh novel. It's about four women. Ruth, who is a teacher. Her friend Jean, who teaches at the same school she does. Ruth's daughter, Eleanor, who is an addict, and Eleanor's daughter and Ruth's granddaughter, Lily, who is not around at the beginning of the novel and in the course of the novel uh, grows up from a baby to a teenager. And what I think the novel is about is the long-term effect over almost 20 years in this case on a parent of the behavior of their child most generally but more specifically the long-term effect on the parent if their child is an addict how that manifests itself at different points in the parents coping mechanisms in uh their self-reproach, you know, the extent to which they do and don't blame themselves and how much that changes over time. The effect on the parents' social circle, their colleagues, their friends, who know about this never-ending, seemingly never-ending problem and how they position themselves in relationship to their work colleague or their old friend. And But also how the behaviour of the addict and how the parent feels about it into the parent's existing self-esteem, self-image, 
whatever parcels of guilt or inadequacy <laughs> Ruth may have picked up in her 60-odd years before we meet her, how are those in turn catalyzed by having to deal with her daughter, Eleanor, and Eleanor's decision to have a daughter of her own? I mean, in narrative terms, what it means is that Ruth effectively kidnaps Eleanor's daughter for, as she tells herself, her granddaughter's protection. But it's also made clear that bringing up the granddaughter becomes an opportunity to try and do things right that she feels may have gone wrong, even though nothing may have gone wrong in, relationship, in relation to her daughter. And if I've made that sound a bit chewy, that's my fault, that's not Susie Boyd's fault, because it's written with such clarity and with such emotional poise. It's also sort of quietly experimental. The narrative voice switches around in a way which is sort of ambitious and risky. And uh, I just found it, I found it incredibly moving. Not sentimentally so, really deeply moving. I, I had to keep pausing between the chapters to try and weigh up what had happened to any one of those four women at any any given moment. Um, and I found it profoundly illuminating. So, Susie, if you listen to this, thank you very, very much. I feel like I learned so much. Can I just read two paragraphs? The start of chapter two. Uh, I'd particularly like to draw listeners' attention to the first sentence of this. I mean, if one would be so happy if one wrote this sentence, and Susie Boyd did write it, so here it is. On the morning of the christening, I took the sicket in a Sainsbury's carrier to a man off Bond Street. I'm just going to read that again because I like it so much. On the morning of the christening, I took the sicket in a Sainsbury's carrier to a man off Bond Street. We stood facing each other while I muttered something formal and incoherent. We were in a darkish Italian cafe, three quarters empty. Twelve shiny lozenge-shaped rosewood effect tables, not much wider than ironing boards, and Elvis droning on and on about missed opportunities. I was nervous. I felt shipwrecked almost. Ship-racked. He took the brown paper from the painting, narrowed his mouth, dipped his shoulders. He was organising himself for disappointment, I could see. I stored it up, his little insincere routine. Thought it might come in useful later. The man was wiry and weak-chested with a stale Dickensian pallor. Nicotine stains on all ten of his fingers. Wild of hair. It's not a great picture, he said. A sketch. The ancient-looking painting of a sparrow-like figure on stage in white organdy flanked by red curtains, one arm raised in the direction of the gallery, was the best thing I had. It is what it is, the man said. She gets £4,000 for the painting and she gives it all to her daughter in the full knowledge of what the daughter will do with it and takes the granddaughter. So uh, that's Loved and Missed by Susie Boyd. It's an absolutely wonderful novel and it's come. If, if it's out now in hardback and it's published in paperback in June. And who's, John, who's published it? Virago. Virago, brilliant. John, what have you been reading? I have been reading uh, uh, a collection of poetry by uh, the Ukrainian-American poet Ilya Kaminsky, 
um, called Deaf Republic, which was published in 2019 um, and was published uh, kind of to very, very good reviews, both here and in the, the US. I suppose I started reading it because, I, like everybody, I've been, I've been looking, reading, listening to stuff that helps helps you kind of pick some kind of emotional trajectory through what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. And I have to say, this this book, reading it now, I'm not sure what I would have felt. I'm sure I'd have admired it if I'd read it two years ago. Um, but it really ha feels like it has a kind of clairvoyant power. Uh, it's unique, I suppose, in, in kind of collections of poetry I've been reading recently, and it has a narrative structure. He described it himself as a fairy tale in verse. It tells a story in two acts. It's like a play in two acts concerning a group of characters in a city under siege uh, being besieged. And um, without giving away too much, it's two of the characters are, uh, are, are puppeteers. There's a, there's the, the sequence starts with the murder of a, by a soldier of a small boy um, in a public square. Um, and gradually as you work through the narrative, the second half of the narrative concerns another, both, both the, the, the husband and wife are puppeteers and have a baby. And then the second half is about another older puppeteer who looks after the baby but gradually there is a lot of there's a lot of death through the the sequence you're going to read us a poem from the beginning of the book and then one from the middle of the book and then one from near the end of the book so Correct. listeners can get a sense of the structure that you're talking about what's the yeah. first one so the first one is the very near the beginning it's called gunshot our country is the stage when soldiers march into town public assemblies are officially prohibited but today, neighbours flock to the piano music from Sonia and Alfonso's puppet show in Central Square. Some of us have climbed up into the trees, others hide behind benches and telegraph poles. When Petya, the deaf boy in the front row, sneezes, the sergeant puppet collapses, shrieking. He stands up again, snorts, shakes his fist at the laughing audience. An army jeep swerves into the square, disgorging its own sergeant. Disperse immediately! Disperse immediately, the puppet mimics in wooden falsetto. Everyone freezes except Petya, who keeps giggling. Someone claps a hand over his mouth. The sergeant turns toward the boy, raising his finger. You! You! The puppet raises a finger. Sonia watches her puppet. The puppet watches the sergeant. The sergeant watches Sonia and Alfonso. But the rest of us watch Petya lean back, gather all the spit in his throat and launch it at the sergeant. The sound we do not hear lifts the gulls off the water. That's our opening sequence which sets the poem up. I mean, it's one of the things that he does through this, Ilya, is, um, is hard of hearing. He lost most of his hearing. I think most of it he's now managed to restore through electronic means, but he, for a lot of his life he's, he's lived as a, as a deaf person. So one of the things that uh, the older puppeteer, Mama Galia, does in the book is create a sign language. They resist the occupation by speaking in sign language. And this creates an extraordinary reflection on silence and the meaning of silence. He said silence doesn't exist for the deaf. It's an invention of the, of the hearing right in the notes at the end of the book. 
But shall we hear the next poem, yeah. Andy? So this is um, Ilya. Ilya reads his own uh, audio book of Deaf Republic. So we're going to hear a, um, him reading a, a poem now from the middle of the collection called A Cigarette. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Dea, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Dea Oat Cream Blend. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. A cigarette. Watch. Washington citizens do not know they are evidence of happiness. In a time of war, each is a ripped out document of laughter. Watch. God. They have something to tell that not even they can hear. Clamber roof. In the center square of this bombarded city, you will see one neighbor dips a cigarette, another dips a dog, a pint of sunlit beer. You will find me, God, like a dumb pigeon's beak, I am packing every which way at astonishment. I, I, John, I did read this two years ago. Yeah, uh, I thought it was all right, and it's depressing to say that when I came back to it, when I knew you were going to be talk- talking about it, I found it jaw dropping <laughs> for all the wrong reasons in terms of because of what's happening in the world at the moment. I, I, I'm going to go tonight. I'm going to read the whole thing again. Really, really unbelievably powerful, and as you say, uh, clairvoyant. It's um, yeah, it's 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 powerful. I think the final final poem is this one and it ends after this there are some uh, some of the uh, sign language that that, that that has been developed through the book for the, for the for the people in the town the sign language says the town watches earth's story that's the final as it were poem in the book and it's just pictures of hands on the page uh, the town watches earth's story mm. uh, which is mm. a kind of again this sense that somehow things endure that things happen buildings are destroyed lives are destroyed but there is there is something that endures and this final poem that he's going to read gives a sense of that and yet on some nights our country has surrendered yes later some will say none of this happened the shops were open we were happy and went to see puppet shows in the park. And yet, on some nights, dance people dim the lights and teach their children to sign. Our country is a stage. When patrols march, 
visit on our hands. Don't be afraid, a child stands to a tree, a door. From the patrons march, the avenue's empty, air empties. But for the squeaks of strings and the tap, tap of wooden fists against the walls. You know, to most people, the vast job of handling the mails is a mystery. Folks simply drop their mail in the neighborhood mailbox, then don't give it another thought. They just have faith that it will be delivered to the addressee within a day or so anywhere in the United States. Your post office has given such dependable service for so long that speed and accuracy are taken for granted. We're glad for this confidence. But today we can't take it for granted any longer. Let's face it. Our method of handling the mail is old-fashioned. We have some very serious problems. But we are solving them. We are making real progress. Now our narrator will show you how. Genius. It's the crying of Lot 49, and to quote Gore Vidal, Lot 49 has been cried. Who will open the bidding? <laughs> I think we should open the bid. I think Sarah should make the opening bid because she chose this book for us. Sarah, when did you first read The Crying of Lot 49? Uh, I first read The Crying of Lot 49 as I began my journey into postgraduate education in English literature. And I had a, a not dissimilar experience to the one that you just described, uh, Andy, in that I it was one of many, many books that I read um, in my as I began my education, that everybody had told me was brilliant, and I read it, and I didn't see anything there, and I didn't get it, and I thought it was full of dumb, puerile jokes. And uh, I mean, and, and by the way, it is full of dumb, puerile jokes. <laughs> yeah. to, to, just to reassure totally listeners, yeah. yeah. In my defense, it is definitely yeah. full of this, but um, that's very much on the surface, and I didn't see past the surface at all at first. Um, and then there's something about it that works on you, even unconsciously, or at least did on me. And, um, and I went back to it. And it was one of those where it just kind of, you know, the scales fall from my eyes. It was, in fact, a revelation. It was an epiphany, um, which is very, very appropriate, because this is a book about epiphanies. And, um, I, and it kind of works on that level, I think. Um, I have um, now spent the last kind of 20 or 30 years teaching it, uh, uh, over and over and over again. And it's easily, in my opinion, one of the five greatest American novels of the 20th century. It's one of the reasons that I brought it here because now I've been on this kind of run to bring the ones that I think are the are the masterpieces. And it's a weird thing to say about Pynchon because he's so lionized. And uh, But I think this book, The Crying of Lot 49, has a real claim to be called a, a neglected masterpiece. How many times have you read it to the nearest? Round it up. How many? Oh, 50. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. I'd expect nothing, nothing fewer. That'll pass the Miller test easily. Indeed, yeah. yeah. So, Sam Leith, Sarah has opened the bidding at 50. Yes, um, I, I, I think I probably get three. Um, even so, which respectable. Is a, which is a you know, amateur hour, but there we are. Um, I am trying, because you said you were going to ask this, to kind of remember how I got into pension. And you find yourself talking about it a bit as if it's one of those sort of sort of drug almost. You know, what was the <laughs> gateway drug? Was it crying mm. of Lot 49 or was it the, the very, very funny beginning of Gravity's Rainbow? I know that I read both of those books in my teens or early 20s. And 
kind of was entranced by them and didn't, you know, like Sarah, completely get them. But I could see there was something going on there because Pynchon's, among other things, his ear, the cadences are so good. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But um, actually, the sort of, you know, the time I suddenly dropped two Pynchons at once and really got it was when I was asked to review <laughs> Against the Day, which is enormous and, you know, none more Pynchon. The Pynchonness is dialed up to 11 in that book. And because I had had it for review, I had to read its thousand odd pages in about two weeks. And therefore I did literally nothing else for two weeks. Mm. And it's one of the very, very few experiences I've had of having finished reading a novel and for about a week afterwards, actually feeling like my entire brain had been rearranged and I was seeing the world in a different way. And it really was like having taken some sort of psychedelic. John, have you read, uh, what's your history with Pynchon? Okay, so I read this when I was a teenager and I read this and I read Gravity's Rainbow. You know, we used to show off because we'd read Gravity's Rainbow. I was so interested in the ideas, particularly all the kind of the physics and the, and the, and the kind of conspiracy theories in the book. I had not realised how unbelievably beautiful the language in this novel is. Uh, you know, I do this all the time on Backlisted, but I, I've not had so much fun for uh, as the last as the last week of rereading this novel. And I've, I've actually I've, I've I've read it twice because I it was it's so rich. Mm. It's clearly a great novel. What about you? Yeah, same as you, really. I mean, I'd read The Crying of Lot Forty Nine when I was a teenager. Um, I read Mason and Dixon when that was published in the nineties. Um, I didn't really understand that at all. Uh, <laughs> and so I reread uh, The Crying of Lot 49 for this. But I thought, ah, I'm going to get ahead of the, these uh, these experts this time. So what I did was I, I bought this, a companion to The Crying of Lot 49 <laughs> by J. Kerry Grant. And um, I've got to tell you, this is one of those rare instances where I was, uh, after reading A Companion to The Crying of Lot 49 by J. Kerry Grant, I was even more confused than after reading <laughs> The Crying of Lot 49. <laughs> nothing, against, nothing against J. Kerry Grant, I have to add, but such is the range of um, Melville-like, cosmic, yeah, yeah, yeah. scientific, historic, universal stuff within this little 150-page book. I felt... J. Kerry Grant himself was sort of exasperated while he was trying to race through telling you all the things that are being referenced in The Crying of Lot 49. So I, I, um, I'm I, totally fascinated. We're going to come back to this later in the podcast. But I'm totally fascinated by where Thomas Pynchon sits now in the canon. The 20th century novelist, Thomas Pynchon. I want us to come back, come back round to that. I think what would be great, Sarah, could you read us a bit, um, and then I'll share the blurb on the from the original first edition. I'm doing it that way round because I want people to hear the language before we then try and explicate it. Yeah, absolutely. Can I can I can I say one thing before I read it, just um, to to set it up, which is that as as you've both said, that the language is so beautiful, but I think that. Readers will, because we are going to read, I think, some wonderful passages in here, but I feel like if we just signal listening to one aspect of it, which is that it's a, it's a novel about metaphor and it's a novel full of metaphors and similes, epic similes, and uh, but they're kind of 
postmodern jokey epic similes, right? And they're how meaning is built. So I'm going to read an extended metaphor, which is how the book begins, which is our heroine. Now, John, John, we've had conversations about how to pronounce names on this program before, um, but now I'm going to hold out for the American pronunciation here for a simple reason, which is, so her name is Oedipa, or Oedipa, as the female version of Oedipus. Um, and the reason I'm going to say Oedipa in the American style is because her friends or her husband actually calls her Ed, and it's spelled O-E-D. So unless we think he's calling her Ode, uh, <laughs> he is, I believe it's pronounced Oedipa. Now, I actually want to come back to O-E-D because that's a very Pynchon-esque joke, and there's a reason why her name is Ode. Um, but I think we have to say Oedipa for it all to work. So the novel opens with her learning that she's become the executrix of uh, her ex-lover, and she learns at the same time that he died. So it opens with her discovering that her ex-lover died and that she has been made his executrix. And at the end of the first chapter, she has a memory of this trip that they took together to Mexico. And it sets up everything, really, that the novel is going to do through this extended metaphor. And it's a comparison to a real uh, painting, which is worth um, everyone knowing as they listen to this uh, as well. This is one slightly long paragraph. Um, as things developed, she was to have all manner of revelations, hardly about Pearson Rarity or herself, but about what remained yet had somehow before this stayed away. There had hung the sense of buffering, insulation. She had noticed the absence of an intensity, as if watching a movie just perceptibly out of focus that the projectionist refused to fix, and had also gently conned herself into the curious Rapunzel-like role of a pensive girl, somehow, magically, prisoner among the pines and salt fogs of Kinneret, looking for somebody to say, hey, let down your hair. When it turned out to be Pierce, she'd happily pulled out the pins and curlers and down it tumbled in its whispering, dainty avalanche. Only when Pierce had got maybe halfway up, her lovely hair turned through some sinister sorcery into a great unanchored wig and down he fell on his ass. But Dauntless, perhaps using one of his many credit cards for a shin, he'd slipped the lock on her tower door and come up the conch-like stairs, which had true guile come more naturally to him, he'd have done to begin with. But all that had then gone on between them had really never escaped the confinement of that tower. In Mexico City, they somehow wandered into an exhibition of paintings by the beautiful Spanish exile Remedios Varro. In the central painting of a triptych titled Bordando al Manto Terrestre, where a number of frail girls with heart-shaped faces, huge eyes, spun gold hair, prisoners in the top room of a circular tower, embroidering a kind of tapestry which spilled out the slit windows and into a void, seeking hopelessly to fill the void. For all the other buildings and creatures, all the waves, ships, and forests of the earth were contained in this tapestry, and the tapestry was the world. Oedipa, perverse, had stood in front of the painting and cried. No one had noticed she wore dark green bubble shades. For a moment, she'd wondered if the seal around her sockets were tight enough to allow the tears simply to go on and fill up the entire lens space and never dry. She could carry the sadness of the moment with her that way forever. See the world refracted through those tears, those specific tears, as if indices as yet unfound varied in important ways from cry to cry. She had looked down at her feet and known 
then, because of a painting, that what she stood on had only been woven together a couple thousand miles away in her own tower, was only by accident known as Mexico. And so Pierce had taken her away from nothing. There'd been no escape. What did she so desire escape from? Such a captive maiden, having plenty of time to think, soon realizes that her tower, its height and architecture, are, like her ego, only incidental. That what really keeps her where she is is magic, anonymous and malignant, visited on her from outside and for no reason at all. Having no apparatus except gut fear and female cunning to examine this formless magic to understand how it works, how to measure its field strength, count its lines of force, she may fall back on superstition or take up a useful hobby like embroidery or go mad or marry a disc jockey. If the tower is everywhere and the night of deliverance no proof against its magic, what else? Oh. <laughs> Mic drop, Sarah Churchill. <laughs> can I, can I say one thing about before we move to the next thing, which is those last four options are exactly what happens in the book. Yeah. But I want people to hear that resonating as we talk. Before we go to Sam, Sam, you're going to be first off this. Nikki, it's time for your question that all listeners enjoy. Take it away. Guys, what is the book actually about? <laughs> Sam, <laughs> go. That's such a hard question. I would say it's about paranoia as a way of apprehending the world. Um, and I need to qualify that slightly in the sense that paranoia we normally talk about as you know, in the vulgar sense is the people are out to get me. I don't think that's what the book's about, but in the broader sense, the, as I understand it, paranoid schizophrenia can manifest as a sort of understanding that absolutely everything's interconnected and everything rhymes with everything else and everything's a metaphor for everything else. So it's it's this kind of hall of mirrors and hall of echoes that I think is what, what it's getting at. It's almost a way of seeing the world rather than a series of events. And as you, I think you said to me, and certainly that's the sense I got from the, that passage Sarah read, when you say what it's about, when we try and, and we were having a laugh really with the idea that you can say what it's about, but there's something fractal about it, right? The sense that it goes round and reflects in on itself and everything's connected to everything else. The, Sarah, if we ask you, what's it about? Well, the, you just said, well, it's about those four things. <laughs> no, I said but, that's the plot. That's what happens. It's not a, so it is partly about those four things, right? But I will say something different about what I think it's about. Do if it. you're ready for me. Uh, I'm going to quote uh, Pynchon from this novel here. Uh, so I don't want to get take credit for this phrase. And in fact, we'll come back to this phrase. Uh, it's about the high magic of low puns. Um, it's, <laughs> it's about the ecstasy and insanity of language as a desperate search for meaning that we may want may not want to know. And it's about how uh, this kind of antic surface of language and, and comedy and irony and, and um, energy um, is actually dancing on the grave of a profound grief and loss. All right. Uh, John Mitchinson, what, what, what is it? No, Nikki, you asked John. You asked John. John, I don't get it. <laughs> What's uh, it about? You will by the end, Nikki. Um, it's about, among other things, Nikki. It's about um, it's about the importance of the postal service. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> One of the things that really struck me about this was this is a book written before email, and the idea of 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 people's lives bleeding and leaking into one another 
which is affected now, I suppose, electronically. I mean, this is the this is a novel that is somehow manages to be brilliant about the digital age when the digital age was in its it, kind of in its, its infancy. So the idea that having networks and networks within networks, and that those networks can turn very very nasty. Um, there's there's kind of the alt right are predicted in this novel in a in a really sort of creepy way. So it's about the the connections that generate meaning, but the connections also that repel mm. people from one another. Sarah, what was the phrase you highlighted there from Pynchon? The low. The high magic of low puns. Okay, the high magic of low puns. So that what that makes me think of is which seems relevant is that Pynchon, of course, who who has made very very few public appearances over the years. Almost none. We have almost no recordings of his voice. But one of the recordings that we do have of Pynchon is from his guest appearances in The Simpsons. <laughs> with a paper bag over his head. <laughs> right, with a paper bag over his head. And we know that Matt Groening is a huge Pynchon fan. And we know that Pynchon uh, was a big fan of The Simpsons. And one of the things I remember Matt Groening said that they discovered very early in The Simpsons is for that balance was really important. Yin and yang was really important in the gags in The Simpsons. So that every time you included a high concept, high culture reference joke, you had to balance it with a gag of Homer banging his head. <laughs> and as long as, you, as long as you had both those things circling one another, then the show worked. Um, it's um, it's Shakespearean, right? It's that it's that basic concept of it's 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 that you have to the tragic and the comic have to be in balance for the for the thing to work. I can I, can I say one thing to answer Nikki's question? Just because I feel there is also another line from the novel that does answer the question, and I always say to my students because this is a book that is um, it's a quest and it's a mystery, um, and it's a puzzle. Um, and uh, about halfway through the, the novel, a character says something. And I always say to my students, if you're reading a book that's a puzzle and a mystery, and, and at the center point of the book, a character shouts, communication is the key, then communication is the key. <laughs> so sure. communication is the key to the puzzle, um, in my view. And I think, and it, and it does actually connect all of the things that we've already been talking about, mm. as particularly what John was saying there. I think oh, that the postal service, you mean? The postal yeah. service is an email, but email as well. It networks that the the, um, the importance of communication or the attempt to create a uh, true communication to find true communication. Okay, so what we're going to do in a minute is I am going to I'm going to read you the jacket blurb from the US first edition. Before people knew the crying of Lot 49 was the crying of Lot 49, <laughs> somebody had to try and write a sales pitch and we're going to hear what that is. But Sam, could you read us a bit from the book as well so we can get some more of the pinch and prose? Well, this is another passage that I think, as well as being, you know, extraordinarily beautiful, has that sadness that Sarah talked about and has that concern with with metaphor, with connection. Um, and it comes from a passage after she's been wandering the streets in this sort of fugal state where she suddenly starts seeing the muted post horn everywhere. And she encounters an old drug sailor who has the muted post horn tattooed on his hands. And she sees him and he's sitting on this sort of ratty old mattress and she realises he's dying. And she says, it astonished her to think that so much could be lost even the quantity of hallucination belonging just to the sailor that the world would bear no further trace of. She knew, because she had held him, that he suffered DTs. Behind the initials was a metaphor, a delirium tremens, 
the trembling unfurrowing of the mind's ploughshare, the saint whose water can light lamps, the clairvoyant whose lapse in recall is the breath of God, the true paranoid for whom all is organised in spheres, joyful or threatening, about the central pulse of himself, the dreamer whose puns probe ancient fetid shafts and tunnels of truth, all act in the same special relevance to the word, or whatever it is the word is there, buffering to protect us from. The act of metaphor, then, was a thrust at truth and a lie, depending on where you were, inside, safe, or outside, lost. Oedipa did not know where she was. Trembling, unfurrowed, she slipped sidewise, screeching back across grooves of years to hear again the earnest, high voice of her second or third collegiate love, Ray Glosing, bitching among us and the syncopated tonguing of a cavity about his freshman calculus, DT. God help this old tattooed man, meant also a time differential, a vanishingly small instant in which change had to be confronted at last for what it was, where it could no longer disguise itself as something innocuous, like an average rate, where velocity dwelled in the projectile, though the projectile be frozen in mid-flight, where death dwelled in the cell, though the cell be looked on at its most quick. She knew that the sailor had seen worlds no other man had seen, if only because there was that high magic to low puns, because DTs must give access to DTs of spectra beyond the known sun, music made purely of Antarctic loneliness and fright. But nothing she knew of would preserve them or him. She gave him goodbye, walked downstairs and then on in the direction he'd told her. Wow. I mean, just wow. Everyone who takes part in this episode is, is will be awarded their Cub Scout reading badge afterwards. <laughs> because this is really, I mean, it's not easy to necessarily to read, but what I get from both of you is your pleasure in the, the your pure pleasure in Pynchon's pleasure in making the language dance, right? There's a sort of, you, the 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 luxuriating in the vocabulary, which I could see, Mitch, uh, your face was utterly transported there while Sam was was reading. It it's just so, it's so it's it's so rich. That's the thing. It's 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 profound and beautiful. Which is you know, what else do you want from fiction, really? I think he has the most <laughs> astonishing ear. Yeah, I mean the cadences. And, I Absolutely. mean one of the things that's. It's interesting you say they're tricky to read, Andy, and you're you're right there, I think, because one of the things Pynchon loves to do is produce a great long sentence or fugal series of sentences where, you know, he has these suspended clauses right in the middle and sort of holds off to the main can clause you, can, or to the, where the sentence is heading. Can you give me, I'm not saying give me an example, but when you say a suspended clause, what do you mean in... in, in I mean, it, 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 the, the sentence is, it sort of defers constantly, the sort of completion. So, you know, the saint who's walking to light lamps, the clairvoyant who's lapsed in recall, the true paranoid. You mm. know, you're, you're, yeah. you're heading yeah. for the verb, but yeah, yeah. there's always something else interposing between the beginning of the sentence and the main verb. Exactly. I mean, the first sentence of the book is, is, is a brilliant example of that. Go you know, on. It, it's, okay. One summer afternoon, 
Mrs. Edipomas came home from a Tupperware party whose hostess had put perhaps too much kirsch in the fondue to find that she, Edipa, had been named executor, or she supposed executrix, of the mm. estate of one Pierce in Vererity, a California real estate mogul who had once lost $2 million in his spare time but still had assets numerous and tangled enough to make the job of sorting it all out more than honorary. Something gleeful about it, isn't there? Yeah. The sense that, oh, look, I could go Phrases here or I, could, yeah, 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 I yeah. could go there. But but let's also remember there that so what we know as we read the novel is that she's discovered that this is the death of her lover. Yeah. And in the passage that I just read, she calls him the night of deliverance. And the image is that even the night of deliverance couldn't break her out of the tower in which she's trapped, which is to suggest that he is more than just an ex-boyfriend. Right. He's the night of deliverance and even he couldn't get her out. I actually think this book is also a, a love story. I think she wasn't profoundly in love with Pearson Verity. And part of that comedy there is a way of deflecting around all of that. that because she goes on this quest to find out whether he cheated death, whether he left her something, not money, she's not interested in money at all, whether he left her some, whether he constructed something meaningful for her that could help them find this connection and whether it will make sense of the world, whether it will make sense of her life, whether it will make sense of anything. And then it spirals her into this paranoia as she seeks it. So it's about grief to me. Um, and, and we were talking a minute ago about, the, about uh, as Sam said, these wonderful suspended clauses and, and these metaphors, these riffs, right? And yeah, Pynchon is like, he's just showing what he can do. It's a tour to force this novel of 150 pages. But he can also write beautifully simple, piercing sentences. And there's one where she's drinking some dandelion wine that has yes. been made from the dandelions that were, there was a cemetery that has been turned into a freeway. And, uh, and somebody has preserved <laughs> some of the dandelions and it was land that Pierce owned. And she's gone on this quest and she's given this bottle of dandelion wine, this glass of dandelion wine. And she gets a little bit tipsy again as she does in the, as she is in the opening um, scene there. And the narration says, no Oedipa thought sad, as if the dead really do persist, even in a bottle of wine. It's an incredibly beautiful sentence, right? And I mean, I just did that, you all attest, I just did that from memory because it's a book, a sentence that has stuck in my head. Um, it's Shakespearean, I think, um, in its rhythms, and it is so simple and, and lovely, but it's also getting at the heart of it that there's that she thought Oedipa sad. I just want to um, orientate listeners if they're wondering. Um, we're still answering Nikki's question, <laughs> and perhaps always we'll be will be. All night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, twice, twice it had never occurred to me. But the word buffering has come up. But that's 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 you know, sitting looking at that little spinning wheel. That's what that's what reading. That's what the book's like, Nikki. That sadness that Sarah talks about is absolutely integral, and it's sort of throughout pitch. And I think that's one of the things that's really makes him so so special and sort of unique it's a, you know often people think of him as being clever and think of him as being kind of antic and all the silly names and the puns and the daft jokes and the kind of looney tunes zaniness of it but there is and it's a line again i think it's from against the day that i found that he he talks about how it's the incorporation of death into what would otherwise be only a carnival ride 
there is a carnival ride quality to pension, but underpinning it all is a sort of profound seriousness, and the seriousness and silliness mm. kind of combine Bal and mesh in a completely unique way in pension. Balance again, right? A high Balance. magic to low puns, the seriousness yeah, 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 and the yeah, silliness, yeah. right? Who wants to hear the jacket blurb? Yeah, come on. Because the list in come that on, I, right, I really so, do. so arrives in the marketing department of Lippincott's. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I think. Well, I I suspect Thomas Ruggles Pynchon Junior may have had a hand in this blurb. We'll see. So this is from the U.S. first edition flap copy. Is there a secret privately owned post office <laughs> operating? <laughs> <laughs> Who isn't gripped by there that? There is now. <laughs> is there a secret privately owned post office operating in competition with the state monopolies? A slightly sinister method of communication for those who have opted out of our society? This is the question that increasingly bugs Edipa Mass, heroine of Thomas Pynchon's second work of fiction, The Crying of Lot 49. Pynchon, whose first novel, V, was widely and enthusiastically reviewed, was described by George Plimpton in the New York Times book review as a young writer of staggering promise. In his new book, there is the same combination of wild hilarity and grim reality that made V so notable. Pynchon's work has been called avant-garde, as indeed it is, but its basic concern with breaking the walls of human isolation is as old as literature itself. The Crying of Lot 49 takes place in California. It is the story of Oedipa Mass, a young woman who finds herself appointed executrix of a former lover's estate. This is annoying enough, but when it leads to the gradual revelation of the secret postal system of the outcasts, discovered, of course, through a bizarre philately, Oedipa <laughs> <laughs> begins to want out. Unhappily, by this time, she is in too deeply with, among others, a fake British musical group called The Paranoids, a child actor-turned-lawyer called Metzger, and a whole gang of dangerous zanies trying to kick the love habit. Thomas Pynchon is a young writer, he is splendidly talented, and The Crying of Lot 49 is a book that will sell to the ever-growing market of Pynchon fans. <laughs> That's pretty good. I think that's great. I think that's really good. If you were coming to that cold, I can yeah. definitely detect some Tom at work in yeah. the uh, in the latter <laughs> yeah. stages of yeah, that, right? <laughs> that's why I'm usually talented young copywriter for Lippin' Pots. You kind of got it first time. <laughs> that young man has a future. <laughs> <laughs> and who heard of William Gaddis after that? <laughs> so... Uh, so what I did when I was preparing this episode was I'm going to ask each of you one of these questions. I, I, uh, Thomas Pynchon, as we know, is famous for being a recluse, and we're going to hear a little clip in a moment of CNN reporting on that in the 1990s. But first, uh, I googled uh, the name Thomas Pynchon, and up comes the thing on Google with questions that people have asked about Thomas Pynchon. So I'm going to ask you one each. Uh, Nikki, what is Thomas Pynchon known for? Don't know. Okay, excellent. <laughs> uh, What's the answer? He's a no, he's a novelist, oh, I Nikki. Know that. I thought that <laughs> yeah. Else. Okay. Yeah. No. No. That's fine. No. What's he known for? He's known for writing and crying a lot. Oh, yeah. Forty-nine. I got that. Yeah. He's playing it straight. 
Uh, John, next question. What happened to Thomas Pynchon? <laughs> what happened to Thomas Pynchon? Uh, that's such a big question to answer. I mean, uh, and Thomas Pynchon became very, very famous and uh, and has remained famous, although we haven't nailed the is he as famous as he used to be, is, 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 we'll he, as, um, is he as important and influential as he used to be. I love Sam earlier said that we kind of grew up surrounded by Pynchon's children. Well, let's um, ask Sam the next one. What is Thomas Pynchon's writing style? Uh, the answer Google gives is probably postmodern, but I'd what? say Pinchonian. Yeah, <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> Very good. My Round bets. we go, the spinning wheel. <laughs> buffer, um, buffer, buffer. And finally, Sarah, to you, the, the question people wanted to know above all other questions on Google, is Thomas Pynchon real? <laughs> uh, I mean, I can't personally attest to it, but I have uh, I have reason to believe that he is real, and and uh, and I I have I have met people who purport to have met him, so I've got one degree of separation. So uh, I think he's real, but um, I can't prove it. And of course, this is a this is very much a novel about um, about paranoia and about um, how yeah. do we know if we know what we think we know right, is right. true or not. I thought so, that was um, such a great question. <laughs> Is <laughs> Thomas Pynchon real and does it matter? Exactly, you know, exactly. I, I could get very paranoid wondering. <laughs> Salman Rushdie uh, had dinner with him, didn't he? And said, <gasps> and when they asked, because I think he'd given a, was it a, a, a nice review of Vineland when a lot of people were not mm. being. And anyway, they had dinner and, and when asked about it afterwards, all Rushdie would say he, he was the Thomas Pynchon I wanted him to be. <laughs> which I think is nice. which is a pretty good answer. Well, he's famous for being supposedly a recluse. And in the 1997, CNN set a reporter on his trail. And here's a little excerpt of the piece that they ran uh, back then. One of the 20th century's most respected novelists. Many of his fans don't even know what he looks like. CNN's Charles Feldman tries to pierce the mystery of Thomas Pynchon. He's uh, the Greta Garbo of literature, and this fascinates quite a few readers. Some of them have tried to seek him out. Others uh, suspect that he's a kind of a Wizard of Oz type character behind the scenes who has access to all sorts of special knowledge. Fans may be disappointed to learn Hinchin leads a somewhat conventional life in New York City. In fact, should you pass the now 60-year-old author on a busy Manhattan sidewalk, you wouldn't even know prove point. CNN caught up with Pynchon, and he is among the people you have been looking at. At Pynchon's request, and after much debate, CNN has opted not to point him out in the crowd. Pynchon told CNN by phone, a rare public comment, let me be unambiguous. I prefer not to be photographed. And as for the notion that he is a recluse, Pynchon told us, and we quote, my belief is that recluse is a code word generated by journalists, meaning doesn't like to talk to reporters. <laughs> he's actually a recluse and not an author. Not just he's famous for being a recluse. So that's correct. That was he's a, he's a recluse in Manhattan. He's not a recluse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a code word. Of course it's a code word. Deborah Rogers, the late literary agent, knew him well knew him a little and, and knew his wife, who was also yeah. a literary agent very well. And she said to me, you know, Tom goes out. Yeah, he has exactly. friends. He has he has a normal life. They all cover but for him. I think he forms falls sort of perfectly between two stools because the sorts of newspapers that would want to doorstep pension aren't going to be interested in him. 
because their readers aren't interested. And the sort of newspapers that are really interested in pension would, you know, they'd regard it as bad manners. Exactly, wouldn't dream so of he's able to, him. Exactly. I mean, you know, the, the, the Observer or the New York Times wouldn't, wouldn't do that sort of story. He, remind, so, he reminds me that that idea of him being re, a recluse is really like how, how people felt about the late Scott Walker which is that Scott Walker would say, well, I'm not really a recluse. I just don't do public stuff when I don't want to do it. And w Scott Walker would famously, I mean, I wish, who wouldn't want to do this? This is just common sense. He'd have his phone plugged in for one hour a week. So if you wanted to get Scott for any business stuff, you had to call him on a Wednesday between four o'clock and five o'clock. And the rest of the time you couldn't get him because he was working and he was you know, doing the stuff that he wanted to do without having to deal with anything else. And I feel like, like you say, that's surely what Pynchon is. Pynchon just doesn't want to be in that game. But he wants to be in all the other games. <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was going to say, sort of slight sidebar, but it is one of the great satisfactions in my professional life. I have reason to believe that Thomas Pynchon possesses a photograph of me in a Santa hat reading inherent vice. <laughs> You're going to have to unpack that one for us, Sam. That's too good. Well, well, for about a year, I was I was writing the lead book review for the Daily Mail, and, and around Christmas, they wanted me to do, you know, Christmas books to read. And so slightly against the spirit of the organ I was working for, I, I d d insisted on doing inherent vice, and obviously it being the mail, they wanted to photograph. And so they took me into this hotel in sometime in like October and they had a Christmas tree and they put a Santa hat on me and I had to put a big stack of books and obviously the, the book I chose to be photographed reading was Inherent Vice which as your listeners may know is, is a kind of um, all about a sort of weed head 1970s private eye which is again not not perfectly Daily Mail stuff and fiction. I think that might have been why I lost the gig shortly afterwards. <laughs> but Deborah Rogers said oh we love I said that to Tom. I thought he'd like it. <laughs> Apparently he oh. takes a great interest in the British tabloid press. <laughs> wow. Can I that CNN clip we just heard, I, there's a particular pleasure in knowing that Pynchon gave them a statement which began, let me be unambiguous. unambiguous. <laughs> <laughs> I was enjoying that very much too. What? <laughs> For one and one time only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, what joy. <laughs> One of the things I didn't understand in The Crying of Lot 49, I'm, I'm being brave, <laughs> one of the, you know, several, <laughs> the whole Maxwell's demon element yeah. of it, I found yeah. that I couldn't get my head around that at all. Okay. After 50 readings, do you feel more <laughs> relaxed with it? Well, I do and I don't. So I, I should say I, I have uh, no background in physics, so anybody who does have background in physics will be uh, laughing their head off here, right? But my tongue was very much in my cheek when I said 50. I'm not sure how many times I've read it, but uh, 50 is the number, of course, that comes after 49. And this is... <laughs> this 49 is not an arbitrary number. Lot 49 means things in this book and it means a lot of things. And um, and there's the, there's a phrase he has uh, at one point, Oedipa thinks about, um, she wants to bring the world into pulsing stelliferous meaning, right? pulsing star-like meaning. And 
everything, all of the key things here have kind of pulsing star-like meaning, meaning, and Maxwell's demon is one of them. So Maxwell's demon is an image of, a sort of, of, it was an attempt to explain the second law of thermodynamics before the second law of thermodynamics was understood. And the, of course, as all of our listeners know, um, the second law of thermodynamics is the law that governs entropy. Now, this is where the physicists are going to start laughing because I'm going to garble it. But basically, it's why things don't get spontaneously hot, but they will spontaneously go to a stable temperature because what happens is that atoms will disperse evenly but randomly. And that's actually one of the images for how the book works. It's about the dispersal mm. of energy evenly but right. randomly. And how that then may or may not create equilibrium, it may or may not create, well, it will create an equilibrium of energy, right? But entropy, of course, is about heat death. Now, as I said, I think this is a book about death, right? Fundamentally, it's a book about grief. And one of the things that there, that Oedipus finds herself stumbling on is this, is this interest in the ways in which physical entropy that entropy of thermodynamics, the gradual running down of the world, the gradual running down of matter because of thermodynamics, which is the running down of Earth, the running down of stars, but also, of course, the running down of human life, actually meshes with another metaphor where entropy is also about noise and communication theory. We all know what noise means now. Pynchon had to explain it in 1966, but the interference uh, mm, between mm, the, mm. The, the message and the meaning and the attempt to get there, right? So what Pynchon really, I think, begins with here is the, is the beauty of this one word linking these two ideas. And the whole book is really about how those two ideas come together. Maxwell's demon is it is and where it comes into the the post office is that Maxwell's demon is an image of of uh, so when they were trying to attempt to explain thermodynamics there was this early theory that basically there was a little man who sorted the atoms <laughs> like like a homunculus oh, yeah. he just like kind of a sat little... there like a male guy yeah like a little yeah. male guy yeah. and he sorted okay. and he sorted man. the hot from the cold and he kept the hot things hot and the cold things cold and um and then okay. you know kind of started moving them around right and what's important about this is that the idea was that the was that the sorting didn't they thought that sorting didn't necessarily require an input of further energy right because the irreversible process is that energy will eventually run down you can't keep putting energy in right and eventually you're going to run out of it right so this the the search for the irreversible process is an attempt to find something that doesn't require an input of energy and if we can do that, we reverse death. If we don't, that's the mm. idea, right? That's the theory. I, I, I don't think you can plot spoil a mystery that has no solution. So I'm just going to say that, <laughs> yeah, that to it, me, what makes this book so ecstatic, and it is to me, it's an ecstatic experience reading this book. Like I get goosebumps every single time I read it, because what I believe Pynchon does is posit that metaphor reverses the irreversible process because it explodes meaning without us having to put anything into it. The metaphors create wow. pulsing stelliferous meaning. And that's why it's such a dizzying experience and why I said at the beginning, it's about the ecstasy and the insanity because the language goes places we don't expect it to go. And one of the things he does in this compact little novel is create these patterns that control it and that resist entropy. The whole thing is constantly threatening to pull apart from him. All of these ideas pulling in all of these directions. But he has these metaphors, these, these anchoring metaphors that hold it together. That was amazing. You asked, I asked you a hard question. You answered it <laughs> effortlessly. <Yeah. laughs> but I want to ask Sam, right? 
Sam, can I ask you, um, in your role as literary editor, as much as Pynchon fan, where what does Pynchon mean now? Where does, where does Pynchon's reputation sit? I feel like he was incredibly, perceived as incredibly important in the 60s and 70s, maybe drained away a little. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure where he where he lives now in the canon i think it's hard to say i mean he's i think he had a sort of 60s 70s 80s sort of cult following that was a kind of countercultural following and, and the sort of literary fruit of pension you know which i i described earlier mm. that that sort of everyone started to band thing that that there are a lot of novelists who are influenced by him who are important is still there I think it may be that we've had a sort of turn in the last 15 years or so, sort of back towards, if you like, slightly old-fashioned novels. Yeah. People have rediscovered the joys of the more or less realist novel, and that therefore that kind of postmodern fracturing novel that Sarah so well describes is kind of semi-marginal at the moment. I don't think it's gone away, and I don't think it ceased to be important, and I certainly don't think Pynchon has ceased to be important or, or get the respect that he deserves. But he's not sort of in the centre of fashion at the moment, I don't think. I don't know whether you guys would agree with me about that. I think you're absolutely right. I think there are there are probably writers out there who, and you've mentioned some of them, I'm thinking of Tom McCarthy, in a sort of crazy kind of way, what Pat McCabe's doing in his latest book that we were just about to publish with, you know, bringing sort of that comic book energy into a into a quite and and folklore into a reflection on death is feels there's a connection there with Pynchon. Rushdie's always writing in a kind of sub Pynchonian way, and it does strike me actually that that you know going back to that Californian thing, surely Wozniak and Jobs and Gates they were all they that that generation the people who mm, created the world that we now live in we're probably raised on pension, right? That, that His influence, I think, I guess what I'm saying is maybe more profound in the culture than in, than in the, um, the actual writers who, who, are, who are writing today. Mm. Sarah, what would you say? For me, one of the reasons why I love this book so much is that although it comes so early in his career, I think there is a falling off afterwards. And he was, I think he is somebody that we could describe to a certain extent um, aesthetically as a little bit of a victim of his own success because his ideas are so huge. And I think his career kind of follows that entropic model that I was talking about <laughs> a second ago to a certain extent. The books just start to fall apart there. Not fall apart. I mean, I'm not saying that they're bad, right? But but he can't control them in quite the same way. And this book is so, is so rigidly controlled and it's almost like this little prose poem. And one of the reasons why I think it's it's useful to think about it in relation to Gatsby is that he is that he keeps it short and simple and compact and it lets all of it get really explosive, whereas all of the other books get quite diffuse. And he is allowed to be a little bit self-indulgent because he is the great American writer. And mm. uh, and so for me, I can't quite, I, I enjoy all of his novels always. I mean, we heard why he's very funny. He's very, he's very, he's always brilliant. Mm. It's all mm. great. But this one to me is the masterpiece because for whatever reason, he forced himself to rein it in. Um, and, and then it gets explosive. And so I feel like it's not completely a question of fashion, but also whether his books continue to quite pull, pull it off in quite the same way that this one does. 
Well, I want to, before we, we say our farewells, I think we should, in the Pinchonian way, counterbalance what Sarah's just said <laughs> with the bit from Against the Day, is it, Sam, that you, you have here? I would like to return us to the prose, to the Pinchon prose from, a, from another book, because it's just amazing piece of writing. Yeah, I think this is this is lovely. It's buried in that enormous book. And it's when two of the characters, Kit and Dally, they're in Venice and they're they're parting. It's a it's a farewell scene. Around them, travellers drank wine out of cheap Murano souvenirs, clapped shoulders, brushed away leaf and petal debris from last minute bouquets, argued over who had failed to pack what. Dally was supposed to be past the melancholy of departure, no longer held by its gravity, yet as if she could see the entire darkened reach of what lay ahead, she wanted now to step close, embrace him, this boy, for as long as it took to establish some twofold self, renounce the sombre fate he seemed so sure of. He was gazing at her, as if having just glimpsed the simple longitude of what he was about to do, as if desiring to come into some shelter, though maybe only her idea of it. So, like terms on each side cancelling, they only stood there, curtains of Venetian mist between them, among the steam sirens and clamouring boatmen, and both young people understood a profound opening of the distinction between those who would be here, exactly here, day after tomorrow to witness the next gathering before passage, and those stepping off the night precipice of this journey, who would never be here, never exactly here, again. When the machine takes over, and by reading that code, sort the letter properly. Here it is, reading the codes and sorting letters. And we are working on many other machines. So you can see that with what we already have and what we are developing and planning for tomorrow in research laboratories, we are making very real progress. And as the demands on your postal service increase, as they will, we will work even harder to serve you better. That is the kind of mail service our great country should have. That's the kind of service we want to give you, the kind you expect. We can do it, and we know we can, and we will. That is amazing. <laughs> and I'm afraid that is all we have time for. Although it's entirely possible another version of this very podcast exists and is continuing to record <laughs> in another temporal dimension. Huge thanks to Sarah and to Sam for offering us such strong circuits through the Pinchonian entropy. And to our producer, Nikki Birch, we await silently, silently the, edit. the edit. In joke. <laughs> <laughs> and to Unbound for the cloudy dandelion wine. You can download all 159 previous episodes of Batlisted, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising and your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early. And for the fraction of the price of the original pressing of I Want to Kiss Your Feet by Sick Dick and the Volkswagens on Discogs, <laughs> lock listeners get two extra lock listeds a month. Our own version of the Scope Bar, where we three hang out and groove to things we've heard, watched and read in the previous fortnight. 
I just have to add at this point that, that, that somebody did form a band in the late 70s called Sick Dick and the Volkswagens. You can listen to them on YouTube. What a racket. <laughs> really? What a horrible racket. Uh, but you have to go over there to listen to that, I'm afraid. Uh, lot listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. John, you go first. Okay. Henrietta Magistet, Suzanne Osmond, Andrew Mail. Uh, friend of the show. <laughs> Ray, finally, well, thank you, finally. Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> finally, Jan Heron, <laughs> Eleanor Cleghorn, Johanna, Daniel Taub. Thank you, Alan Begg, Martin Riley, Leanne Crowley, Veronique, Taylor McNeil. Thank you all. And um, we're also delighted to welcome the uber loyal backlisted supporters, Joe Chopra McGowan and Leanne Hollister, who've both promoted themselves to our Guild of Master Storytellers, the highest tier in the backlisted firmament. Thank you both. Thank you, guys. Thank you, for, thank you for, for your generosity and all our patrons for enabling us to continue to do what we love and enjoy. We have, as is now traditional, we have to hand over to our guests to ask them before they go. Is there anything? Uh, I know Sarah has got nothing left to say. But if she could, if she could, we'll see if we can coax her out of her shell one more time. Um, Sam, is there anything you would like to add that we haven't said about the crying of Lot Forty Nine or about Thomas Pynchon? Should he hear this, what would you like to say? I would like to congratulate him on inventing a Jewish philatelist called Genghis Cohen. <laughs> Highly specific, but uh, <laughs> but, but I mean, might we'll be, be taken we taken in good part. Uh, Sarah, is there anything? I mean, I know there's lots we haven't covered, but is there anything in particular you would like to say about the crying of Lot Forty Nine? You're so passionate about it. Is there anything you would like to say to listeners in terms of reading it or getting into it? Uh, yeah, um, I would say that it's very appropriate that I kept promising we would get to Revelation and we didn't get to the Revelation. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's the revelation so the revelation will never come. Uh, but for those who would like a little bit more revelation, I do think that there are uh, keys to what Pynchon is doing. And this may come as a surprise, but I would point out to people that the first word that is spoken in the novel is God. And that the last thing that happens is that Oedipa is waiting for the descent of the Holy Ghost. And if you want to understand the novel, in my opinion, you have to read Acts 2, which is the descent of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which is the 50th day. It's a puzzle. The book is a puzzle and it's a word puzzle. So you have to think about 50 and spirits and, and what the word revelation means and mm. how it all relates to uh, the search for meaning. And it's actually that we really, we really have just scratched the surface of what I think he does Amazing. here. Um, and, uh, and, and then he makes it about America. So, I mean, it's really just the bomb. This book is just the bomb. You've made me feel very trivial. <laughs> Good, then my job here is done, Sam. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Brilliant. Keep listening because uh, we, there's a message from the guy who's uh, the puppet master of everything you've heard today. So thanks, everyone. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sarah. See you next Thank time. Thank you, guys. Brilliant. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, guys. author today only we'll throw in a free autograph but wait 
There's more. Here's your quote. Thomas Pinchon loved this book almost as much as he loves cameras. 